0: good morning again. Make sure I'm on. Um, We are continuing our summer series today looking at the stories of Jesus. We're looking at the parables. And this week we come to Matthew 18, verses 21 to to 35. uh, To the parable commonly known as the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, If I'm honest, this is a very difficult story for us to hear because it's all about forgiveness. Uh, Jesus tells the story after Peter asks him, This question that we all wrestle with in verse 21. Peter asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? I love Peter because he says what we're all thinking. Um, He's wanting to limit grace, and yet he's being very generous here. He's saying seven times. The common teaching in that day in the rabbinic traditions was three times. It was one, two, three strikes, and you're out, and I don't have to forgive you after that, and you're on your own. Um, so Peter's being gracious and extending it to seven times. You know, he might have a particular person or group um, in mind as he's asking this question we don't know, but I'd be willing to bet that you do too. You know Who are the people that you have a hard time forgiving, that you want to stop forgiving for the ways that they continue to wound ...and injure you. It could be your parents, your spouse, uh, your children, your siblings, your boss, your neighbors, a friend, a coworker. Who are the people that you say to Jesus, when is enough enough? When can I stop extending forgiveness to these people? Forgiveness is something that Jesus knows that we are going to wrestle with daily. That's why we, we prayed in the Lord's Prayer earlier... And we read it in our, before our confession, um, right after, give us our daily bread, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus knows how difficult this is for us, and that's why he tells us this story. But before he tells us this story, he answers Peter's question in verse 22. He answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, some of you might be familiar with translations that say 70 times 7. It depends on how you translate the Greek idiom there. That doesn't matter. The point that Jesus is making is if you're counting, you're doing it wrong. There's to be no limit on forgiveness. You cannot be keeping a tally. If you're counting, you are not forgiving. You're only postponing your revenge until a, little, a later date. And then Jesus tells this parable, and it's awesome. Because Jesus here, if we come to him in humility, ready to learn, he actually reveals to us one of the worst tendencies that's, that's within all of us. And he does it not with an accusation, but through a story that lets us assess our own hearts and then lets the Holy Spirit go to work on us. So let's read that story now. I'll read Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 35. Uh, this is God's word for his glory and for our good. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Please pray with me. Father, we need you to show up this morning. These are hard words from Jesus. Uh, They're not what we're used to hearing. Um, Some of us might not be used to hearing your word at all. And so, Father, we pray that you would meet with us this morning, that you would soften our hearts, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, help us to reflect upon your word, our lives, and your gospel. We pray that you would change us, that you would meet with us. Um, We expect you to be here and to, to meet with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're just going to jump right in this morning. There's not much time for us to do anything else. Um, Jesus already told the story. We're just going to ha- head right in. There, there are three scenes in this parable. Um, the first scene, we see the king's response to the servant's unpayable debt. Second, we see the servant's response to the forgiveness received. And third, we're going to look at Jesus' conclusion, and we're going to look at our response in the midst of that. So first, verses 23 to 27, we see the king's response to the servant's unpayable debt. Verse 23, Jesus begins, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle the accounts with his servants. We're getting a story here that gives us a glimpse of how God the king operates. This king is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He has the right to settle his accounts with his servants. Everyone, everything in his kingdom are his, and this is how this king works. Verse 24, he began the settlement a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him since obviously he was not able to pay the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt so here we're introduced to this servant of the king who owes this unpayable debt this isn't a lowly house servant this is this is likely some sort of government official who either by mismanagement or corruption We don't know and we're not told, we can only speculate. He's accrued this crazy debt. And then when Jesus says 10,000 bags of gold, um, you can imagine laughs and snickers and jaws dropping and opening from Jesus' original hearers. Uh, The the NIV says bags of gold here. If, If you're familiar with this passage, you've heard, or if you have another translation, it likely says talents and We don't use talents anymore as a unit of measurement for money, and so it makes sense that the NIV would say that. But a talent in Jesus' day was the highest unit of measurement for money uh, in that day, and it equaled to about 75 pounds of gold here. And one talent, we're going to do some quick math here, one talent equaled roughly what you would hope to earn in 20 years' worth of work. Okay? So one talent, 20 years' worth of work. So 10,000 talents equaled 200,000 years of labor. So when Jesus says 10,000 talents, he's combining A, the highest unit of measurement, with B, the highest Greek numeral at the time. And the effect is Jesus saying this. This guy owes a kazillion, kajillion dollars. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's driving home the point that this barely plausible debt that the servant was responsible for, could not be reimbursed. There's no way he could even make a dent in it. So the king does something gracious here. It doesn't seem gracious to us, um, but it's just and it's gracious. Because the money's his, remember? So, so to recoup some of the debt, he orders that the man and his whole family and all their stuff be sold. Now, this is a common practice back then, to sell people and possessions to have them pay off their debt if they were their slaves. Now, why do I say it was gracious? Well, because the king was actually within his rights to throw this man and his family in debtor's prison where he'd labor and be tortured and never have a chance at repaying this debt. Or he could have just had him killed there on the spot. But he doesn't do that. Verse 26, what happens next? The servant falls on his knees before this king and he begs him, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. Uh, This is kind of the first glimpse that we get of the character of the servant that we're going to come back to later. But he asks for more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. You can imagine the people in the courts laughing. Um, This request is ludicrous. It's laughable. It's like you expect the king to just start laughing here like when my kids ask me, hey, what are we doing this weekend? Can we go to Disney World? And I say, No. (laughs) Are you kidding? We're not going to do that. We can't do that. We, we're not going to do that. Um, that's what you expect the king to do here, just to, to laugh at him and to say no, but the king doesn't laugh. The king doesn't even give the servant what he asked for. He has pity on him. Now, pity here doesn't really capture the full sense of the word here because it makes us think that he just kind of felt sorry for him and kind of the southern, oh, bless his heart. Like, that's kind of what we think. This word is so much more than that. It's, it's the word that, that is used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus' response and feelings when he meets someone who can't help themselves. It means he felt compassion towards him. It literally means his heart went out to him. He identified with him. He felt empathy and sympathy toward him. And he, then he cancels the debt and he lets him go. So the king shows us what forgiveness looks like. First, he took pity on him. His heart went out to him. He had compassion on him. He identified with him and saw the broken and needy servant as a fellow image bearer, someone worthy of dignity and respect. He didn't reduce him to his sin. You get that, right? Like when, when someone hurts us or sins against us, you know, we say they're a liar or they're a cheater or they're evil or they're a bad driver. You know, we, we reduce them to their sin. But when we do the same exact thing, there, there's context there. There's, I'm, a, I'm a three-dimensional person. That's not me. There's nuance. There's reasons for that. I'm, I'm a complex individual. There's reasons for that. Miroslav Volf says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness requires that we look at those who hurt us and we see them as human beings, as fellow image bearers worthy of dignity and love, that we not dehumanize them and that we remember our own broken and sinful condition. This king doesn't reject the broken who come to him. He identifies with them and he extends grace and forgiveness. Then the second part of forgiveness, this king cancels the debt. Now this is, again, this is real debt that the servant's responsible for. And it's so much money that it would have placed the king's whole kingdom in jeopardy. Not having this amount of money could bring the whole kingdom down for this king. And he doesn't just erase the debt. Just, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Forgiveness is extremely costly. He absorbs the debt. This king, remember, represents... God, and this God, doesn't enforce His authority harshly. Rather, He shows unimaginable generosity because His heart goes out to His servants who cannot help themselves. And this is exactly what our God does for us. The Bible often refers to our sin in economic terms as debt, our failures, our brokenness, our misplaced desires, our refusal to obey, and honor and love and serve God, our refusal and rebellion and failing to love our neighbors, our inability to measure up to God's infinite holiness and perfection and mercy and love and righteousness, that's all called sin. And we too, like the servant, have accrued a debt of sin with our king, one that we cannot pay off at all, one that we cannot fix on our own. So if we're going to get out of our debt of sin, someone has to intervene. Someone has to step in. We can't be good enough to cancel the bad. We can't work hard enough to make up for our sin. We need someone to absorb the debt for us. And that's exactly what our king does in Jesus. But this story happens in Matthew 18. It's before the cross happens. So it's told under the shadow of the cross. Jesus telling the story knows exactly what this debt is going to cost him. He's going to pay the debt that we owe with his blood, with his very life. So forgiveness, we need to hear this morning, is never cheap. It's free to the one receiving it, but it costs the one extending forgiveness because you're saying, when you forgive someone, I'm not going to make you pay for that. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm going to bear the loss here. I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to pay for that. That's why when we forgive, it's so hard. Because we're saying in those moments, I'm not going to bring this up again to get leverage against you. Now, we can talk about it in a redemptive way, but I'm not going to use it to control and manipulate and shame you. We also say I'm not going to gossip about you And slander you. Now, I might seek counsel and advice, but never to gossip, never to slander you and defame you. And we also promise I'm not going to rehearse this over and over in my brain, fantasizing about how I can get my revenge. That's what we do when we forgive, we pay the cost. And then the king sends him out, he frees the servant. Go out and live a life of freedom, not under the weight of the debt anymore, but to live in light of this mercy and grace that you've received. Now, if this was the end of the story, this would be a happy ending. It would be wonderful. But as we see, we get verse 28, the servant's response to forgiveness. It says, immediately, the servant went out from the throne room of the king, and we don't know if he stumbled upon this guy that owed him money or if he went out looking for him himself. But this, he stumbles across a servant who owes him a hundred silver coins, the text says. In other places it says denarius, or denarii. And he grabs him by the throat. And he throws him to the ground, and he begins to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. So we see the twist here. This isn't a happy story. The servant, having just been forgiven an unpayable debt, comes across this guy who owes, owes him a hundred denarii. Now, you need to know a denarius was one day's wage. So this isn't like an sig- insignificant amount of money. This is a real debt. This is significant. It's 100 days wages. It's about four months' worth of work. That's a lot. If someone owed you four months' worth of work, you would want that back. But he's just walked out of this room. You'd expect the light bulb to go off. You know, oh, I was, I was just forgiven this huge debt that I never could have paid. I get it. I get it. I should show mercy to this guy who just owes me fractions of what I was forgiven. Really, it was one six hundred thousandth the amount that this guy was just forgiven. But he doesn't do that. He grabs this guy, throws him to the ground, becomes violent with him, revealing that he's trivialized his debt. And in doing so, he's trivialized the forgiveness that he's received. And because of that, he begins to choke him, to make him pay. Then we get verse 29, which is almost verbatim, verse 26, and says the second servant falls to his knees, presumably because he's being choked. And he says almost the exact same thing that the one choking him has just said to the king, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. So like the original hearers of this story, we hear the similarities that are going off to what was just said, but the servant doesn't he refuses, and he has this man thrown in debtor's prison until he can pay his debt. He says, I'm going to make you pay for this. So the question for us is, how do we do that? When we refuse to forgive people, how do we make other people pay for it? How do we get and exact our revenge? We can do it by lashing out, by trying to wound them, by giving the silent treatment, by constantly bringing it up, Every time we have the chance to pick the scab and let the wound fester. We're trying to, to punish by, by gossiping, by telling others, you know, I'm just, I'm just worried that this is going to affect someone else, that they're going to do this to someone else. So listen to how terrible this is. Or we can get really self-righteous and we can be like, I'm too good to get you back. So I'm not going to do anything on the surface. But under the surface, I'm never going to let this go we can begin to delight in their misfortunes. We can, begin, we can delight in their failures and in their hurts and their suffering and we long for it and we fantasize about it and we wish for it. If you and I are honest, at this point in the story, we're torn because we really identify with the choker in this story. Jesus wants us to. He wants us to know we're not the king, we're not God. So he, the, the other character in the story for us to identify with is the one who receives grace and then turns around and chokes someone who owes him something. We cry out, that's not me, though. But the reality is is we identify with the unmerciful servant, and yet we are repelled by him. We want mercy. We want to receive it. And we want to deny it to others. But like we said earlier, Jesus is amazing in telling this story here because he shows us our very, very worst and the truest parts about each of us, not through an accusation but through a story that if we're humble before him, the Holy Spirit begins to work on us. We're repulsed and sickened by these actions of this unmerciful servant. Yet if we're honest, it really describes you and I more than we care to admit. We like receiving grace. We like receiving forgiveness. But man, if you cross me, you're going to get yours. I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to make you pay. We said that forgiveness before was was costly. But what we see here is that not forgiving is actually more costly. There's a higher cost to not forgiving. The other servants, they see this behavior. They're outraged. They know this is wrong. So they go and they tell their king everything that has happened and the king brings the servant back in he says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours. The emphasis is on all that debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And so in anger, he throws him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed subtext, he can't pay it back, so this is going to be forever. He could never pay it back to begin with. He's not going to be able to pay it back anytime. time. So then Jesus kind of begins to tie this up with his conclusion. Not forgiving has a higher cost to you than forgiving. Whether or not you are forgiving is a matter of life and death, spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying. He's saying an abiding unwillingness to forgive will cost you eternally. When you're unwilling to forgive, This isn't struggling with forgiveness. This isn't wanting to forgive but having a hard time with it. This is a hardness towards those who've hurt you. So you cannot, you will not, you refuse to forgive. Jesus is saying this ugly behavior is revealing the ugly condition of your heart. Because being unwilling to forgive actually begins to change you. It makes you violent. It makes you choke others. It makes you make them pay. You take out your revenge fantasies. You harbor bitterness, and when you let that bitterness take root, it takes over your whole life and your heart. Jesus is warning Peter, his disciples, warning you and I this morning, if you know the king's mercy, you are to show it. If you can't forgive others, then you don't grasp the king's forgiveness. It's God's kindness that leads him to forgiveness and leads us to repentance So if we love God's grace, we are to extend it or we don't understand grace at all. A refusal and a failure to forgive raises doubts that you ever tasted God's grace at all, that you've actually been forgiven. And then Jesus closes the story by basically like stopping and looking at the camera. He like breaks the fourth wall here in verse 35. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There's too many you's and yours in that sentence to make me comfortable. I like them's and they's when Jesus is talking about this. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond to Jesus' words here? This isn't soft, sweet, encouraging, gentle Jesus. Um, Jesus isn't messing around here. This is, this is serious, so we, we can't just ignore it. Um, we need to let the weight of that Sentence settle in a little bit. It's not easy. But before we look at what Jesus actually is saying, we need to look at what he's not saying. And we mentioned it earlier in the service, he isn't saying that grace is conditional. He's not advocating for entry into his kingdom, into his love, into relationship with him by means of works righteousness. He's not saying, if you're good at forgiving, then I will forgive you. He's not Saying that, because that would go against the rest of the gospel that teaches that Jesus died for our sins and we enter into life with him by grace alone, through faith alone, so that no one can boast, Paul tells us in Ephesians. But it would also negate the first half of the parable, it would go against Jesus, the king, forgiving this man this great debt. The debt cannot be paid by us. It's too large. We can never make it go away. The king has to pay for it. He has to cancel it. He has to absorb it. And Jesus knows he's going to the cross to pay for our sin with his very life so that we can be brought in, so that we can be made his, so that we can know forgiveness and grace. But like in the Lord's Prayer that we prayed earlier, Jesus is showing that there's a correlation between you having been forgiving and you having been forgiven and in you showing forgiveness. It's like imagine there are two trees in your in your garden in your backyard. You know, it's summer. One tree has, has a bunch of or- beautiful oranges on it, and the other tree has no fruit on it at all. The fruit isn't the life of the tree, but it's evidence that there is life in the tree. The other tree that doesn't produce fruit is is presumably not doing so because there's something wrong with it. It's dead. It's decaying on the inside. So the forgiveness, the fruit, if you will, isn't what gives you life, but it shows whether or not you have life in Jesus and if you've been forgiven at all. Because when we stay angry, when you hold a grudge, it makes you feel so good. It it makes you feel so self-righteous and so self-pitying and so self-absorbed but one pastor says it this way if this is how you're acting, you're on your way to eternal punishment like the servant, because you're acting more like Satan in that moment than you are like Jesus. So pretty sobering words. We we have to see that we've been forgiven this infinite debt. So how dare I withhold the grace that has been shown to me, even though the wounds that have been inflicted upon me are significant and painful. They do not compare to the infinite debt that I've wounded my Savior with. So like we said, to to not forgive really is a life and death situation. If you believe the gospel, which is this, that Jesus came and lived the perfect life for you, that he died on the cross paying for your sin, taking the punishment that you deserved for your sin on the cross, and that after three days in the tomb he rose again, defeating sin and death and the devil, and then by believing in him, by turning to him in faith and repentance, you are forgiven and you are brought in and you are made a child of the king and now he sings over you and rejoices over you and dances when he thinks of you. If you believe in that gospel and you hold a grudge, it shows that you're either blocking the effects of the gospel in your life Or it shows that we're really kidding ourselves and we really don't believe. Jesus is is saying here that the best sign of whether you know the gospel from the heart is whether you are a forgiving person or not. Jesus is saying to Peter, to us, if you've received grace and forgiveness from the king, not because of anything you did, but because I sacrificed my life for you, you are to reflect me as your king in your relationships, no matter what. And we say, yeah, but Jesus, you don't understand. You don't, you don't get the hurt. You don't understand. These people don't deserve it. And Jesus is saying, whether the people who hurt you are believers or not, whether they ask for your forgiveness or not, whether they deserve it or not, we're to have the heart posture of forgiveness towards them like he does with us. We never get to harbor bitterness or rage, or hatred. We never get to hold a grudge. We never get to judge another person's heart or hope that they remain unrepentant or hope that their heart gets hardened and they get theirs. Jesus says, forgiveness is to be limitless. Now, this is impossible for us, apart from God's grace working through us, especially because there's so many in this room who've been wounded, who've been abused, who've been traumatized in deep and in dark ways by people whom you trusted, by loved ones, by family members, even by your church. When we forgive, though, we're not just to forgive and forget. That gets misapplied here. We don't pretend like the wound didn't happen. We're not bound to act like nothing happened. We're not obligated to continue getting abused or getting burned or being taken advantage of or allow someone to continue sinning and hurting themselves or us. When someone sins against us, we are called to confront them as we see earlier in Matthew 18. And sometimes we have to put up boundaries or we have to cause separation to happen. But in our hearts, we're called to forgive because the God who loves us has forgiven us our great debt. And so we are to desire and pursue forgiveness, even if it means that it's going to take Jesus coming back for full reconciliation and full restoration to happen, we still hold on to forgiveness. As an aside, we need to hear that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation requires two people, and forgiveness takes just one, and we are only in control of ourselves. And so Jesus says, if you're counting, you're not forgiving. So either forgiveness becomes a way of life for us, or we blow up. One of the problems with the unmerciful servant is that he's a servant who's acting like a king. When we let anger rule us, this is how we're we're acting. The only way that we're going to move toward forgiveness, towards reflecting Jesus in our relationships, is if we put our little story in the context of his bigger story. If we see all that you've forgiven me, how can I withhold forgiveness from someone whose debt is so much smaller in comparison to mine? We need to stop elevating our own importance and have a proper understanding of our own condition and stop acting like kings instead of servants and look at the king who became a servant for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you are refusing to forgive this morning, then Jesus is calling you to ask yourself, Am I really his? Am I really a follower of Jesus? Do I see that my debt has been forgiven? If you've never done that before, do you want to know this love and grace and forgiveness and freedom that is offered to you in the gospel this morning? Do you want to know a king that loves you, that doesn't hold your sin and your failure against you, that doesn't manipulate or shame you, that identifies with you to the point that he becomes your sin on the cross and he loves you so much that he dies to make you his. Have you experienced that forgiveness in your life? So come this morning and throw yourself before Jesus today and experience his limitless grace and freedom and love and forgiveness. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that You give us your word, that you give us difficult things to chew on. Um, Father, we pray that you would meet with us by your spirit, that because of your goodness and grace, we might turn to you and live lives of forgiveness, that we might be overwhelmed by your grace, that we might move towards those who may have hurt us, who might not know so that we can extend your grace and your kingdom love and mercy. Father, we know that that is impossible without you, and so we ask that, that you would help us to, to know you and experience you afresh this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.